Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of On The Rocks Solo Session Edition. It's your girl Ash, I am here um, in the late hours burning the midnight oil. I have been trying to record this podcast for the past two weeks, but I have just been super busy and I'm super trash at time management, so I figured... February is over as of tomorrow. Like, as of right now, it is February 27th, uh, 11.53 p.m., and I figured if I did not go ahead and record this and put this out now, I will have done the ancestors a great disservice. So, this solo session is all going to be... It's going to be all about our unsung heroes of black and ebony excellence, but also going to reveal some details about some people you might know, but you don't really know the full story. So I hope you have your notepads out. I'm just told I'm totally kidding. You need to have your drinks out for this. This is going to be a wild ride. Let's get started. So, I think it's important for me to point out that I grew up in a household where I've always, I feel like I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but there's a significant age gap between my parents and I. Um, My mother was 39 when I came into the picture, and my father was 44. Or 43. Either way, my parents, there is a 39 slash 44 year age gap between us. And literally, my parents and their parents were at one point in time sharecroppers. Um, I can remember my mother telling me about how she used to work for a peanut farmer. I can remember my father telling me how he did work in a on a tobacco farm. And I can remember The fact that my mom is the first, not just black, but she was the first black woman in a lot of situations, not just family-wise, but also within her community. In a time where black history was already in progress, but in particular during the 60s and 70s, just some revolutionary stuff had happened within our community my parents felt that it was imperative that I get that knowledge at home. I hear a lot of people always talk about, well, why don't they teach us this in school? And why don't they teach us that in school? And blah, blah, blah. That's all fine and dandy, but it is very important to understand that learning starts at home. And I'm thankful to Dottie Mae and Jacko Taylor for making sure that I was educated on the history of my people within the house of Dorchester County. It was the house that Dottie Mae and Jacko built. So I felt that I was going to be able to record this in, hmm. my words are kind of failing me because I want to make sure I say this right. Um, I know that some of the people on this list are people that perhaps a lot of you may know, but a lot of this stuff I know that I grew up hearing about, um, reading about, and when I became an adult and I was in college in African American studies classes, a lot of my classmates were just finding out about some of these people. So it makes me realize that it is our duty to sing the praises and remind the masses of the work that our people have done as a collective and it's so much bigger than Martin Luther King having a dream or Rosa Parks sitting in her spot or all the other stereotypical things that we hear in order to pacify the whites and the male monsters for our black history month quotient. There's so much more of these stories to tell, but more importantly, so many other people who have been a part of the movement. So today I am hoping that I can shed a spotlight on ebony excellence of the past, present, and also give some props to those who are making a way for ebony excellence in the future. So without a further ado, let's get into ebony excellence. 
Okay, guys, so our first person, we're going to throw it back to the motherland. Hoteps, I'm giving y'all one claim to Africa. This is y'all's one person. <laughs> um, So we have Queen Nzinga. I hope I am saying that name right. Queen Nzinga was a member of the royal family of, Matam- of the Matamba tribe, which is located in current-day Angola. Queen Nzinga was known for her military tactics, her acumen and diplomacy, but also she was a brilliant leader. Um, Her alliance with the Dutch helped her to hold off on Portuguese colonization in Angola during the 1600s and kind of put a resistance up against the Portuguese coming in and basically muscling in on the slavery territory that had already been kind of set up for years. Um, it's reg- She is regarded as one of the reasons why, while the Portuguese eventually were able to colonize the coastal regions of Angola, it took them a good amount of time to get into the complete interior of the country. And it is said it is because of the strategies that Queen Nzinga set up during her reign. She got the throne because her brother ended up committing suicide after feeling as though he had failed as a diplomat. And she ended up living to be 80 years old. And once she retired from, I guess you can call it retire, but I guess once she stepped away from a lot of the war and for lack of a better term, just ruling, she ended up actually working to secure humane treatment for women during childbirth in the village she was at. And she's just an all-around badass bitch. We're not even going to get into the shit she had her male concubines doing. I'm going to let y'all Google them facts for yourself. But that is our African spotlight. That is our spotlight on the motherland. And now we're going to come a little bit closer to home and we're going to do some South Carolina ebony excellence. So this is a person I'm pretty sure everyone knows. If you're from South Carolina, you have heard of at least these first two people. So you've heard of Robert Smalls. So you have Robert Smalls. He's a native of, he's born in Beaufort. He is the son of a slave, but also the master um mom was a house slave and while she wanted robert to be safe and apparently um robert's father was one of those quote unquote good masses you know he played favorites apparently robert's mom did not want him being favored so he actually spent a lot of time in the field so that he would not feel that he was better than the other slaves. Eventually, when he turns 12, Robert's mom has Massa send him to Charleston. He originally starts working as a lamplighter. I feel like that is, that's, that should, I shouldn't be laughing that hard, but he starts off as a lamplighter, but eventually being on the coast and being so close to the water, he is just so mesmerized by everything with the sea that he ends up becoming a longshoreman and he gets so much knowledge while he's working on these ships. He's unofficially a pilot or a captain. And now you have to remember during these times, Blacks were not given official titles, even though they were smart enough, knowledgeable enough, and competent enough to do the job twice as good as their white counterparts. But that's another drag for another time. So having this brilliance and knowledge of what to do on these ships, this leads to him getting a job on the CSS planter, which he ultimately... Uh, one night, I want to say this is in like 1861, this is right after the whole Fort Sumter thing happened. South Carolina listeners, y'all know about Fort Sumter. We don't even got to talk about it. So it's May, I believe, May 1861. Uh, like I said, Robert is so good at what he does 
the Confederate soldiers are just like, oh, we gonna leave for the night. We going on main. We going on the mainland. We've been to fuck some shit up. We're gonna leave you here. You know, we'll be back in the morning. Robert takes the ship. First, he goes and he picks up his family. Then he goes and picks up several other families. My man sails past five Confederate checkpoints. And he makes it past Fort fucking Sumter. And it's not until after they get out of gun range that the idiots figure out that it is not the white Confederate captain steering the ship, but it was indeed Robert Smalls. By this time, my man is home free. He had the bright idea to bring a bed sheet on the ship so that when they got in front of Union ships and soldiers, they were able to recognize that it was a white flag he was waving. And Homeboy ends up getting a nice little check for um, surrendering this Confederate ship to the tune of $1,500. Um, $1,500 back then is the equivalent nowadays of $38,000. So I think he did pretty good for himself. He and his wife and his kids, they go about their business. Eventually, he sets up a heavy sense of revenue within the coastal area region of Charleston. And eventually, he goes on to be the first black House, he's the first black man to be elected to the House of Representatives. And his story is important because literally he made sure that it was not just him who got something out of it. He made sure to include people who were close to him, but also the people that he worked with. And I think it really goes to show the importance of community, for lack of a better word. Now, we have Septima Poinsett Clark. She is born in Charleston, particularly Johns Island to be exact. And she is just out the gate all about education. She's brilliant as a child. She wants to go to school right away, but of course she can't. It's the 1900s. You know, sis is a sharecropper and, you know, also... The opportunities to make it off of the island aren't as prominent as people may think. So she goes to apply for her license to be a teacher. Of course, you can't really do too much. You can get the license, but you know, it's the 1900s and it's South Carolina. Shit is fucked up. So she starts teaching in the rural area of the Sea Islands and eventually she's able to make it. She starts off at Columbia University in New York, but eventually she gets her bachelor's degree from Benedict College and then she gets her master's from Hampton University in Virginia. Now, here's where shit gets a little bit greasy. So as I told y'all, she's Miss Septima is all about the education. She is all about the reading being fundamental. This leads her to Tennessee, where she works with this program called the Highlander Literacy Program. And it is all about encouraging adult literacy, because you have to keep in mind, during this time, you are dealing with people who are now, quote unquote, sharecroppers slash farmers. They are former slaves, the children of former slaves and education, and then this is Jim Crow era South. So you're not exactly living in the land of opportunity where everyone can just be the talented 10th, like Booker T. Washington or W.E. Du Bois or whoever started that shit. So Septima points at Clark steps in and she realizes, hey, this adult literacy thing is important. We need to bring this back to South Carolina. And she eventually starts this organization or this concept called the Citizenship Schools. Now, she felt that this increasing of adult literacy was important because it was giving black people power, but also it was helping them fight for their right to vote. So now we're in the 1950s and we've got the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And they take note that Septima is doing big dog shit down here in South Carolina. Like my girl is fucking the shit up. Problem is they're looking at it as, well, she's not really making a lot of money 
with this founding school she works with in Tennessee. If we can bring her on to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, we can get the money from that. The problem is, y'all, squeaky clean leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, is one of her biggest critics. Even though she ends up getting named to the executive board, she gets named to the executive board of Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Eventually, they realize that So the issue with Septima Clark coming on to the executive board with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference is she is facing imminent sexism from MLK, but also Ralph Abernathy. Eventually, she mentions in her autobiography that the reason why she finally got King to kind of give her some credit is because the citizenship schools are doing extremely well under the SC, yeah, under the SCLC program. They're making a lot of money. And unfortunately, money talks, especially when it comes to niggas. And I, they feel like, well, you know, she's doing a good job. She's getting our point across. We're going to leave her alone. Meanwhile, Ralph Abernathy is constantly on my girl Septima's neck. He is giving her bullshit, and he doesn't understand why she's there. Regardless of that, Septima Clark eventually go like her work speaks for her for itself. She is known as the mother of the civil rights movement, and the facts are there. Eventually. She also does work with the the health department in Charleston, which is very important. But also, she fights to get reinstated. She fights to make sure that pension and back salary is reinstated for teachers because it happened to her in like the 50s when she was fired. And she felt like, you know, this situation not only affects me, it affects other teachers. Let's figure out a way to make this not happen again. She ends up going on to serve two terms on the Charleston County School Board. And to quote her with what I think are some of the greatest quotes about her, she says, I have a great belief in the fact that whenever there is chaos, it creates wonderful thinking. I consider chaos a gift. All right, y'all, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with some more Ebony Excellence. All right, Cherins, we back. So I hope you were able to refresh your drinks. Number one, I hope y'all drinking brown liquor. Like, I, I don't mean to be that person, but like of all the podcast episodes where you should be drinking some brown, this is the episode you want to do that shit. I realized that in my hurry to make sure I got our first segment done in a certain time frame, I forgot another person who is significant to South Carolina history, and that is Representative Gilda Cobb Hunter. I'm going to first start off by saying Gilda Cobb Hunter is a personal hero of mine. I have met her several times, and she is by far one of the most charismatic people but also so brilliant um while she's not originally from South Carolina she's a native of Florida and she actually got her degrees from FAMU and Florida State University she ended up coming to Orangeburg in the 80s I believe and she originally came and was a teacher and professor at South Carolina State She said that lasted all of one semester because she realized y'all little shitheads in college be wilding the fuck out. So she ends up going for her social worker license and she goes to work for DSS. She volunteers with very, well not volunteers, but she serves on city council for a while. And she realizes that she thinks she can make a difference in the county of Orangeburg in general. So she runs for legislation. She ends up being named to the House of Representatives in 1992. And as of January 2019, she is the longest serving House member. 
28 years. She's a longest serving house member, period. Not no, not just black, not just woman. She is the longest serving house member in the South Carolina legislative body. That is a huge deal. So we're talking about accomplishments and things she has contributed. She is responsible for bringing in money through Santee Cooper. And once again, if you are a South Carolina native, you know what Santee Cooper is. She has helped secure funding for South Carolina State, Claflin, Orangeburg County, Orangeburg Calhoun Technical College, but also she has done work with domestic violence and sexual assault in regards to making sure legislation is passed to ensure the safety of those entities. And also she worked to establish the South Carolina Children's Health Insurance Program and made sure that a bill for $750 million was aided to get God, I can't get my words right. But she got us some funding, $750 million to be exact, to help schools across the state. She has done work particularly with the nursing building at OC Tech. She has helped secure Orangeburg's tourism industry. I'll be straight up honest with y'all. I don't know anything about tourism in Orangeburg because growing up right up the street, I don't know what that would be considered touristy, but hey, you like it. I love it. Um, She is just, like I said, I cannot say enough nice things about her having met her. There are plenty of people on this list who I will talk about that I will never meet, mainly because they did, but also because they are not traveling anymore, I guess. But Representative Gilda Cobb Hunter is a true pioneer. She is a visionary, and I'm just so elated that we were able to include her on this list. Okay, so we're gonna go back in time a little bit. Um, I want you all to think about what was the name of it? Oh, yeah, so Toni Morrison, she has this novel called Beloved and I remember when I was little and Beloved came out I was a hot mess (laughs) because I had nightmares from it but I did not know that Beloved was actually inspired by a true story and that is the story of Margaret Garner. Margaret Garner was born in Kentucky. She was a slave and she endured very harsh and cruel abuse at the hands of her slave master. I want to say in 1856, she and her husband and her kids decide to run away to Ohio, which is considered free man's land. Um, They take the Underground Railroad and no Portia. They did not have to pay fare for the ticket entry. Um, They actually escape across the Ohio River. And apparently this is during what is considered the coldest winter in Ohio at the time. The next morning, the husband is discovered. He's, He's automatically killed. And basically the U.S. Marshals find her. And under the U.S. Fugitive Act, I believe. Yeah, so it's the U.S. Fugitive Slave Act. Technically, U.S. Marshals have the opportunity to bring slaves back if they can. So they surround this house that she's staying at. And Margaret Garner kills her two-year-old daughter, I believe. She kills her daughter. Um, She stabs her or chops her up with a butcher knife. I am so sorry that I do not know the explicit details. It's a really morbid subject, so I tried not to get too involved in it. But she has killed her youngest child rather than subject her to going back to slavery. And she has severely wounded her other children by the time the U.S. Marshals intervene. Of course, she is put on trial It is declared as if she is a murderer, not understanding that she truly did this to protect her children. She felt that the harsh 
and very detrimental abuse that she suffered was, of course, nothing that anyone should endure. But in particular, she did not want her children to fall victim to that same cruelty. So she felt that she did what was best. And she ended up being sent south. And that is where she ended up passing away in 1867. So you have this story of a mother which we were always hearing a mother will do anything. A mother will do anything to protect her kids. And I think it's important to recognize that we talk about all of these extremes that people took during that time to get to freedom. We need to talk about some of the more gruesome sides. It was not all Harriet Tubman and Nicki Minaj going to freedom and Harriet sitting there eating her rice and wielding pistols at people it was real life and it was traumatic and it's something that we really need to evaluate and think about all right so that was super morbid but it's okay because we're just going to keep getting a little bit more creepy we've got mary we got mary ellen pleasant now her nickname was mammy but this woman she hated that nickname and she constantly said if you ever call me that don't call me that don't call that shit to my face now i'm not sure how many history nerds we have here but there is a abolitionist named john brown who was responsible for the raid on harper's ferry in west virginia i'm not here to get into that i'm just here to tell y'all when that man was captured and when they ended up lynching him after he did what he did they found a note in his pocket and it was basically signed by what they thought was this old white guy from the north named wp turns out it was actually mary ellen pleasant um mary ellen pleasant was originally from where was she born at i'm sorry i'm writing this down oh yeah so, she's originally from Ohio. Um, she is the daughter of a Creole woman from Louisiana and a man from Hawaii. And basically, she, if you if you can't think of a Creole person and a native of Hawaii, let's just set the stage and tell y'all she is very fair skinned. And while she uses this to her advantage with the Yakubs, the white people, she is letting her black brown, black and brown sisters and brothers know, nah, I'm really black. And she ends up using this to her advantage. She is one of the first people to really cash in on the gold rush in California, which is what helps her fund a lot of different efforts towards the eradication of slavery in the South and her connections that she built with these white people while passing white. She starts off as a cook originally in this really fancy place and she eavesdrops on the conversations of these rich, wealthy white men and she takes these business strategies and tactics and she applies them to her life and she amasses a great amount of money and she puts the black people that she knows in positions of power within San Francisco and she's responsible for really setting the stage for a lot of the economic infrastructure in San Fran. But most importantly, she is responsible for predicting the boom in oil. So we think about oil and, you know, Texas and where is another place? I guess like Colorado, wherever the other like we but we think about oil as this big industry full of white men with their cowboy hats and you know you think about jr from dallas when the reality of it is that boom to discover oil the black gold is another product of black women being brilliant and i think it's important to have that conversation and recognize that 
before my girl Mary Ellen Pleasant was talking about this, nobody was saying anything before. And it is her knowledge that creates the standard of how we rethink business or at least how they at that time rethought business. So we're going to move on to Granville T. Woods. He is also a native of Columbus, Ohio, and he is known as the Black Thomas Edison. He has invented telephones and telegraphs. He has done major work for, or he had done major work for steamships and railroads, but it was in particular his patent for the electric third rail. And, excuse me, technically Europe had already done this stuff, but it was Granville who really did the legwork to get it set up in North America, and it ended up being taken credit by Thomas Edison. This would not be the first or the last time, and it is said that Granville T. Edison had some, I want to say almost 50 different patents for things that he had created or discovered, but because at the time he was not really clear on how he could protect himself, white people came and they took advantage and they literally... They they did what they did best. They colonized. I, God, white listeners, this is a really well. It's not a bad episode for y'all, but th- th- this is some shit. Perhaps we can use this as some time for some self reflection, you know. And you know, let's just think about how we go forward in our everyday lives. Am I taking what someone in particular? A black person has already established and created and put my John Hancock on it and making it seem like it's my idea? Or am I really nurturing and cultivating these ideas and helping them and using my white privilege to help these people get what they want? Think about it and get back to me. So we've got Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond is the black Canadian equivalent to Rosa Parks, if you will. However, let's be very clear, they could not be any more different. So, Viola Desmond is a resident of black Nova Scotia. Um, Quick little history lesson, Nova Scotia becomes a haven for black free people. It has had several migration periods, the first one starting in the 1600s, again in the 1700s, again in the 1800s, and again in the 1900s. Black people have been migrating to Nova Scotia as a free land for centuries. Literally, it has been happening for a very long time. Either way, Viola Irene Desmond is a Canadian businesswoman. She's a resident of Nova Scotia. And she is a hairdresser. She originally studied under Madam C.J. Walker in New York, and she finished her training. And she came back to Canada, and she ended up teaching people, well, not people, she ends up teaching at a school in Nova Scotia, and she's teaching in Quebec, and she is employing what they consider to be vertical integration, which means she is not only educating these people, she's teaching them how to get these businesses and then redistribute the wealth to other black business owners, in particular black women who want to get into the hair care industry. So she and her husband, who is a barber, they end up combining their shop and they have uh, it's a hair salon on one side, it's a barber shop on another side, and it's all cool and dandy. And you know, the business is making money, and she ends up going on, I guess, like a business trip to a place called New Glasgow. And while no one's enforcing segregation legislative wise, and this is where I say there's a difference between her and Rosa Parks, it is not legal to enforce segregation but more so it is left up to the private 
venue or wherever you're at is up to the owner's discretion. So she goes to this movie theater and she is asked to move. She's and all like I said, it's not legal here. So she's not aware that this is a segregated space and she's not aware that the main floor seats are only for white people. Shawty says she wanted to see the screen. Madam Viola is near was nearsighted like a motherfucker. So she said, you know, I wanna see the I wanna see where the people are. She wants to go sit up close. They ask her to get up. She says, nah, you fucking thought. And she is forcibly removed from the theater and she actually gets her hip injured severely while they're forcibly removing her. She is arrested and she is fined $20. And while they advised her to just let it go because they felt like, you know, you pay the fine and you can get away with it. She decides she wants to fight the charge in court. And while it's not this huge thing like the civil rights, like the civil rights movement is with Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, it's still almost as if they did not want to acknowledge that she had been disrespected. And it is not until later on that she is posthumously pardoned and she is now the only woman who is not royal who is on the Canadian banknote. And my girl is on the $10 bill. She's the first black woman or the first black person, period. But she is the first person of non-royal descent to be put on a Canadian banknote. And this is just a reminder that 2020 is almost here. Donald Trump, don't you fuck up me getting me some fucking Harriet Tubman 20s. I will not have it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey guys, I'm back. So when we talk about black history and we talk about ebony excellence, we have to keep in mind that part of not only the whitewashing of black history but also the erasure of black history includes those who are members of the lgbt community and we have to reckon with the fact that that's not fucking fair (laughs) um pardon my language but i just think it's i think it's abysmal that we seek to erase the struggles but also the achievements and the cultural contributions of our lesbian gay bisexual transgender sisters and brothers in the non-binary all that it's crazy that we're we're already bad enough at acknowledging women but then also we're not acknowledging our people who are not only oppressed by the color of their skin but they are also oppressed because of their sexual orientation and it fucking sucks and it will not happen on this episode so we are going to start with a little trip to the harlem renaissance with a woman named gladys bentley so picture it it's harlem it's the roaring 20s you know you got your duke ellingtons and you got your langston hughes and the Cotton Club, and all this stuff. So, we go to Philadelphia, and we meet a woman named Gladys Alberta. She is a blues singer, she's a pianist, and she's an entertainer, and her career is catapulted when she becomes a performer at this club called the Umbangi. Ubangi? Ubangi? I don't know how to pronounce that. U B A N G I for anyone who wants to look it up. But she becomes a performer at the Ubangi Club and she is backed up by a chorus of drag queens. She is dressed in men's clothing. She wears a tuxedo and a top hat. But she's playing piano and she's singing these super raunchy 
Mm, like she just she just doing she being real nasty. She's she's thinking about some nasty shit, but she's doing it in this very aggressive voice, and she's flirting with women in the audience. And basically, now that prohibition has been repealed, she kind of starts to realize that her her entertainment ship her career is on the decline so she ends up going to california but she ends up being billed as the greatest sepia piano player i don't know what that means but she is so good at what she does but because she is wearing men's clothing and she's cross-dressing she's constantly being harassed She's trying to strive. She's trying to make it. But she finds that her career is stifled because she is openly a lesbian. And during that time, it's already hard enough being black. I can't even imagine the extra stress you put on that when you say that you are a woman who likes other women, but also you happen to dress like a man. So she ends up eventually letting the cross-dressing go. She gets married and she claims to be cured of whatever she was quote-unquote suffering suffering from by taking female hormones. And I share her story because we talk about the Bessie Davises. That is not that lady's last name, and I'm so upset I can't remember it. We talk about Bessie. We talk about Ma Rainey. We need to talk about Gladys Bentley, and we need to talk about the fact that she has contributed to the blues genre of this country, and her work and her contributions are often over, oversaw. Blah. <laughs> Why I can't get my words right. They are constantly overlooked because she was an openly gay woman who also engaged in cross-dressing. And I don't think that's fair that we overlook her and what she's done for the Harlem Renaissance. So fast forward to the 50s and the 60s. We have a man named Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin is from Pennsylvania. He is now known as a leader in social movements for civil rights, nonviolence, socialism, and gay rights. But he originally starts off working with A. Philip Randolph in the March on Washington movement, and he works with MLK, another person who works with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I'm assuming because Nana Septima Poinsett Clark doesn't make any claims about Mr. Rustin in her autobiography. I'm assuming he's not one of the men who's making shit hard for her at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but I digress to impress. Either way, you've got Bayard, who is from Pennsylvania, so he's uh, he's a he's a learner of the Quaker mentality. And he's really big on nonviolence, but also he is a transplant into the AME church. So you've got the Quakers who are very mild mannered and, you know, have this history of being against slavery and and abolitionism. But then you also have the AME church and his mom is a member of the NAACP at the time. So he grows up around W.E. Du Bois and James Weldon Johnson. Eventually, he makes it down south. And he begins to do this influential work. And he is critical in organizing funds, but also getting people organized in the early rumblings of the civil rights movement. He is securing funding. He is making sure that people's voices and the figureheads of the movement are being heard and most importantly he is getting issues that are important in civil rights out there he's working with the labor movement of course his biggest biggest thing is the march on washington he is instrumental 
in getting this rally, this march, this huge moment in history where we get this I have a dream speech. He is the person and the brains behind that operation. Dorothy Irene Height is also a big influencer in the march on Washington, but we don't have time to talk about that. Love you though. So the crazy thing about Bayard Rustin is that his legacy and his part and his role in this movement is often pushed to the side or pushed way to the back because he is an openly gay man. He has he was convicted of having sex in a public place because they found him and another man in a car having sex together. That is what the report said allegedly quote unquote. So much of his involvement in the civil rights movement becomes scarred by this he's basically outed um he mentions in later interviews in the 70s and 80s that he has a really hard time identifying with the coming out culture and this whole movement because where it's celebrated that you know you're coming out of the closet he reminds us that he was literally dragged out kicking and screaming and he is subjected to working on the sidelines and playing in the background and he becomes comfortable with that he's okay with that he marries well he can't marry him but he gets this partner um he towards the end of his life ends up feeling more comfortable in organizing gay rights and he explains that at the time and I want y'all to keep in mind during the 70s and 80s a lot of legislature is being passed and it's looking quote unquote like it's the up and up for the blacks and so he's saying you know all of these laws are getting passed for black people when is it time that we do something to advocate for those in the LGBT community and he is another person whose work just is so instrumental to the progress we have made, but the narrative and that stereotype of we can't talk about him and we can't give him credit because he was a gay man is just constantly a theme. And I think it's important that he gets his roses and flowers now as such an instrumental part of the movement. Our last person in the LGBT segment is none other than Marsha P. Johnson. (sighs) Marsha P. Johnson, I I get happy talking about this because I remember being in gender studies in college, aka the hippie degree that my grandma will call it. I remember learning about the Stonewall riots and I found it strange that It was originally defined as, oh, you know, these LGBT people, they were dancing at this club, which is known as the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. And there, you know, a police raid happens and, you know, it just turns into insanity. You later find out that Marsha P. Johnson, who is a self-identified drag queen, And, you know, she's a transgender woman. She is the one who orchestrated this whole thing. So the Stonewall Inn is originally only for gay men, and in particular, gay white men. It is only for that percentage of the LGBT population. Eventually, everyone else is able to join in. And it takes a while, but eventually they allow women and drag queens inside. So in June 28th, on June 28th in 1969, you have the Stonewall Uprising. It is a riot and it just turns into a complete and utter shit show. But we eventually realize that 
Marsha P. Johnson is the quote-unquote mayor of Christopher Street. She is a very important person in this community. People listen to her. People feel comfortable being around her. But more importantly, people know that when Marsha is around, ain't ain't no basic shit going on. She is making sure that people are taken care of. She is making sure that people are respected. Basically, she takes this opportunity with the Stonewall right, and she starts this advocacy organization to help sex workers who are also transgender. She provides housing for them. She ends up becoming a model for Andy Warhol, and it's just important to recognize that while she was at the start of what is considered the beginning of the LGBT revolution, she ends up doing this amazing advocacy work to make sure that people who are like her, who were rejected by family members and not given a home, she finds a home and a haven for them and she creates a sense of community. And I think that it says something that all of these people who I named in this segment were constantly trying to do work to advance other black queer people of color. I think it's really important and I think that it's one of the unsung parts of Ebony Excellence and I feel like we need to start giving it a little bit more conversation. So in honor of my co-host Kiki and her love of all things fashion, I could not let the episode go by without giving credit to one of our black fashion slash costume icons, and that is Miss Zelda Wynn Valdez. Now, Miss Zelda is a Carolina girl, and she's actually, well, she was a classically trained pianist. I said pianist and not penis, FYI. She trained at the Catholic Conservatory of Music, and she ends up in White Plains, New York in the 1920s, and she's working as a seamstress in her uncle's tailoring shop. She eventually gets a job as a stock girl in a really high-end boutique, and she works her way up the ladder, and she starts doing alterations, and she becomes the first shop for the first black sales clerk and seamstress in this shop. The autobiography or the biography I read, it doesn't mention what shop it is, but I have an idea that it was probably like a department store like Macy's or Bloomingdale's. So you might not have heard of Zelda Wynn Valdez because she is also another unsung member of our Ebony Excellence Brigade, but you have seen her costumes You've seen her fashions and because her celebrity clientele includes included Josephine Baker, she dressed Gladys Knight, Dorothy Dandridge, Ella Fitzgerald, Eartha Kitt, Arian Anderson, and she made the wedding dress for Nat King Cole's wife Maria Cole on their wedding day. Now, here's where it gets juicy. In the 1950s, She, at this point, is known as the glamour girl. She's known for great gowns, beautiful gowns. She is clearly that bitch. She catches the eye of this man, I think y'all might know him, named Hugh Hefner. And she ends up being the woman who designs the bunny costumes for the Playboy Playmates. Yes, the Playboy bunny costume was invented and created by a black woman. And I want to say it was the first commercial uniform to be registered by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So she starts doing these fashion designer workshops in Harlem. She does costume designing skills for movies, and she eventually establishes the National Association of Fashion Accessory Designers, which is an industry group that's intended to promote black design professionals. So I just thought it was really cool to have like a fashion moment. Granted, I don't know shit about fashion, but I feel like Kiki would really appreciate it, and I hope the listeners do too. So... 
We're going to take one more break, then we're going to wrap up with the future of Ebony Excellence. All right, guys. Now, we talked a lot about the past. We talked about, like, ancient history. Talked about the Civil Rights Movement. And now let's talk about some amazing women who are going to carry us into the future of Ebony Excellence. First up, we've got Ayanna Presley. She is a politician and she is a member of the House of Representatives. Now, you might have heard Representative Ayanna Presley's name synonymous with Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I personally love her. I'm not sure where the disdain for AOC comes from, but I love her. Rashida Tlaib, um, Kate Miller, you have Lauren Underwood. These women are just Lucy McBath, Jordan Davis's mother. You have this, I want to say this is the 116th meeting of the Congress, and it is the largest gathering of of women officials elected to the House of Representatives. This is a big deal. Ayanna Presley being here is particularly amazing because number one, she beat out the 10-term incumbent in her first primary election. And then she ran unopposed in the general election in 2018. She has served the city of Boston since she was in college. But fun fact, she started off in college at Boston University. However, she ended up leaving because her mother got sick. And so she went back to Illinois to help her mother out with the bills. So Ayanna Presley does not actually have a college degree. I just want you to marinate on the fact that this woman is so badass and she does not have a college degree, which in politics is considered some form of a stamp of approval. Like, oh, you got a degree, so you must be super competent in making laws. We can talk about people who got degrees who are supposed to be competent, but that's another drag for another time. Another reason why Ayanna Presley's rise to her current position is so powerful is because of the eye that she caught. So Ayanna Presley was originally, well, she's the representative from Massachusetts 7th Congressional District. There is one person in particular, and I feel like this is maybe another ode to Kiki in her absence. That district used to be JFK, a.k.a. John Fitzgerald Kennedy's district. This is a woman who ended up working for the Kennedys after she left college. She worked for Joseph Kennedy, and she ends up becoming John Kerry's director of... Well, she originally starts off as Joseph Kennedy's scheduler, and then she becomes his constituency director, and then eventually she becomes a senior aide for John Kerry. Now, John Kerry can do no wrong in my book. I've I've been saying this since 2004. Um, I don't think he's done anything to prove me wrong, and if he has, don't come up in my mentions and ruin, don't yuck my yum yum about John Kerry. He's one of my favorite people in the world. And in particular, he chooses in his 2008, no, 2009, he's a senator and he makes Ayanna Presley his political director. She's responsible for managing his relationships with elected official, officials in the city. She's working with them on the state level, the federal level. But also, she is now in charge of making sure that the constituents of that district are heard, in particular, the people of color and the black people. Ayanna is currently... I, I, there's a laundry list of things that she is currently doing in Congress in regards to fucking up, fucking shit up. With her partners in crime. I'm not going to hold y'all about the great work she's doing. I'm going to encourage you to Google it for yourself. But I want to make it very clear that Ayanna Presley is for the people. 
I am very, oh yeah, well no, I'll tell you this. She's on the Committee of Financial Services and she's on the Committee for Oversight and Reform and the Subcommittee for Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and Economic and Consumer Policy and of course the Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion. She has been talking about the way credit scores affect people. Um, if you're paying attention to the news right now, she's work. She has done work on the oversight committee for Michael Cohen. She is truly doing such vital and important work, and I think it is awful that when she first came on the scene, incumbent leaders such as John Lewis and this guy who she beat out. Um, who is it? Mike Capuano. The fact that she beat out this incumbent, like title holder, the it shows that the Democratic Party, in order for them to continue securing the millennial vote, they need to understand that whatever was good for the gander back in the day, we're moving forward. And Ayanna Presley is the perfect shining example of what we need to propel into the next phase. Next, we've got Asia Brown. Asia Brown is the mayor of Compton currently. She is the youngest mayor of Compton. I want to say she was... Yeah, she becomes the youngest mayor of Compton at age 31. So, Asia Brown is from... Compton, born and raised, her mother is a chemist at a facility belonging to Caltech, and she is just, I'm not even, not even going to go through the list of amazing things she is, but in particular, she has worked to decrease violence in Compton, she's worked to decrease crime, and she was instrumental in getting blood and crip leaders to negotiate peace. She's big on conflict mitigation and she felt that it was important that the heavy police state structure that had played Compton for such a long time had to be eradicated. She felt that it just was not, she just felt like it was, well, not felt, she knew it was not working. And she saw to it that while she has been she's been mayor of Compton since 2013 and since then she has brought commerce and she has not reversed the side effects of gentrification but she has introduced the importance of affordable housing and the resurgence of the community in Compton and I think that she is a person to watch um, I know that she was originally going to run against Stacey Dash for representative in California, but then she got pregnant and she realized that perhaps it, the time was not right and she felt that there was still work she needed to do in Compton. And I applaud her for saying, there's still work to do here. Let me do what I let me mind the business that pays me here, but also continue making sure that I do what I was elected to do and serve the people. Last but not least, Marseille Martin. Marseille is 14 years old, 14 years old, and she has already transcended planes that. Most people, A, are not even thinking of when they're 14 and probably not even thinking of once they're 21 and out of the house and, you know, supposed to be working a big girl job. Marseille is a native of Texas and she originally started off as a child actress. She did commercials for a long time and then she got put on a show called Blackish and she plays the funniest character on the show, which is Diane. Um... Her precociousness, her charisma as an actress, and her way to really draw people in with that role, it it started early. And people knew up front, like maybe three episodes in the Blackish and Zoe is annoying. <laughs> um, Junior, annoying. Jack, we're going to pray for him. But that Diane, that Diane is hilarious. 
So fast forward years later, Diana is now, well, Marce is now 14 years old. She is the youngest executive producer in Hollywood because she produced and is starring in a movie and a concept she came to them with called Little. And she is now the signer of a first look deal where she is going to be developing scripted projects for Universal. I, I can't say enough. Like, I cannot say enough about how amazing it is when we take into consideration that we want to go in a new direction and that things might have been done a certain way. But going forward, if number one, if you want to stay in business and if you want to make some fucking money, these Hollywood bigwigs need to wake up and realize the power that is in not just black Hollywood, but in these actors, actresses, these producers, these writers, these directors. Sowing a seed into these individuals is so important because they have these amazing stories to tell. And yes, we will always, I don't think we'll ever veer away from slave movies or, you know, the the um maid role or, you know, the stereotypes. However, to create more opportunities, we don't just need actresses and actors. We need producers. We need writers. We need people on the other side of the table. And that's where Marseille comes in. And I see nothing but bright things for this young woman. So, with that being said, this wraps up another solo session. Thank y'all for bearing with me. Um, If you would like to follow me or talk trash about me, first, um, OTR Pod on Instagram. That's O-T-R-P-O-D. Follow us on Instagram if you want to talk trash about (laughs) this episode. But also, personal page, Ashtay Lamp Marie. That is A-S-H-T-A-Y-L-A-M-P. M-A-R-I-E. You can find me there on Twitter and on Instagram. Also, there's like a lot of shit happening this week. Um, of course, we know the whole shit show with Michael Cohen and his testimony before the oversight committee. I'm not even going to hold y'all. I'm 100% sure that nothing is going to happen. Trump once said that he could stand on in the middle of Fifth Avenue and kill somebody dead and no one would care. He is absolutely correct. His supporters do not care. So while I am not getting my hope up that this will jumpstart the impeachment process, I do know that that oversight hearing today was perhaps one of the most entertaining pieces of comedy that I have ever seen. I feel like Michael Cohen was spicy. Um, he gave as good as he got. Uh, AOC, Ayanna Presley, and Talib were very adamant. Um, it was very clear that the Democrats wanted new information and the Republicans just wanted to harp on the fact that he lied previously. And it's very clear that the Republicans on that committee, especially that Jim Jordan and that Mark Meadows, they're getting some type of money from Trump. I don't know how. We can't prove it, but whatever. And then also, if you want to talk shit about what's happening with the Kardashians and Jordan Woods, the drama between Tristan and Chloe and Jordan and Kylie and Kim and Malika and Larsa Pippen, tweet me. Let's talk about it. Because I have theories and I have feelings and I feel like y'all do too. All right, guys, thanks for joining me. Talk to you soon.